politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for real. This is not a show. It is not a drill. It's not entertainment. This is life, liberty, property, and everything that matters on the line for a brand new week here at CR Podcast. It is January 29th, and we are ready to rumble. This is not just a ball game, and yet we have a movement and a party that doesn't even treat it like a real ball game. Like I always say, you have one team on the field running up the score, and then you have another team that focuses on the cheerleaders, the concession stands, the music, just having a good time. And the more the other team runs up the score, the more exciting it gets. Wow, the other team is leading by 10 touchdowns. So the more we're going to go down on the field and take some selfies and get myself a piece of that history. And that more or less describes the conservative movement. It is all inputs and not outcomes. It's all rage or entertainment, but to no end. To no end. And that's how we have this situation where the more radical and destructive the left gets, typically if you had a real opposition, that would create more of an opportunity to do the right thing because the left would be losing favor in the eyes of the people. But instead what happens is the more radical the left gets, the more they could engage in this rage entertainment complex and take selfies and act like they're doing something to diffuse that natural energy against the radicalism while the radicalism continues. And this is where we are. The inflation, invasion, and indoctrination continues. The demographic remaking of America continues. The insane foreign policy that we have where we throw our troops into random places with behind no defensive lines, with no uh, forward-looking mission or understanding what we're doing there, and now they're getting killed, three killed, 30 injured in a random place near the Jordanian-Iraqi border where we shouldn't be any, anyway. But we had an NDAA that could have done away with this and ordered our troops home before they got killed, and now we're caught in this catch-22 where... You know, on the one hand, you don't want to look weak because you got to respond. But on the other hand, we really shouldn't be there to begin with. So whether it's the NDAA, whether it's the budget bills, whether it's the state legislative sessions, whether it's congressional or state primaries in deep red states, we are not doing anything, but that is our job. Our job is to actually do something. And to to kick off this week, you know, a friend of mine, uh, texted me that he was studying Isaiah 59 and, and just how eerie it is, how it really speaks to our times. And I would say most noteworthy, it speaks to the very people who claim that they care about busting the Uniparty, but in fact come full circle with their own new idols of this Trump and MAGA movement and just this kind of general modern-day conservative media that focuses on every distraction imaginable. And even when they focus on the right issue, it's not in the right way at the right time. So it gets jujitsued into a black hole, which we're seeing with the border situation now. So much for that. You know, we thought we had this great inflection on the border, on state federal powers, on 
you know, fighting back against judicial supremacism. It's all a joke. It's all bait and switch, as I warned. We'll get to that. But anyway, Isaiah 59. Really, you, you got to carefully read through the whole chapter. But we'll start just from the beginning. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither is it his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. In other words, if you stand on the right side of things and actually really believe you're in pain and believe things are a problem and formulate a plan to deal with it, God will help you. But if you turn away from God and you're like, no, I have to be a nut. I have to embrace Bruce Jenner. I have to do crazy things and because we have to save America and then you don't even do the things that you can do. Well, then you can't be on God's side if you're not even attempting to get on it and you have your own idolatry. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perverseness. None call for justice, nor any plead for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch So he talks about hatching eggs and weaving a spider's web. He eats of their eggs and crushed crushed by their own eggs. In other words, when when you make eggs out of idolatry, you create an entire new industry off the idolatry that now becomes a bigger obstacle to solving the problem than before you even created it. And I feel like that's where we are when I talk about the fact that we've gone backwards. We've gone backwards in everything we do. So I want to start with the border and the Lankford immigration plan, but tie that into the congressional primaries and the presidential primary and everything we're talking about, how we are so distracted that every time the left gives us an opportunity to do the right thing, our own iniquity and idolatry that we created to deal with the left is now becoming an obstacle to, well, dealing with the left. So I mentioned on Friday that I was disturbed about the direction of where things were headed with Greg Abbott and, you know, this whole fight of Shelby Park an Eagle Pass. And I will tell you, I really have a sinking feeling in my stomach that it's the perfect screwball to diffuse what would be a critical point. Okay, again, the left has gone overboard on immigration. Right? I mean, even people, the normies that kind of don't care, everyone recognizes this is a problem. Really, for the first time in history, Immigration is at least tied for the top issue. And we have an opportunity to win back suburban votes, to win elections on this, but more importantly, to actually win the policy on this. But instead, we have the perfect jujitsu. At a time when the House is coming back into session, we should have legislation barring the federal um, uh, legal cases against Texas empowering states to enforce the law, and then promising that there will not be a single penny for DHS unless those things are included in the March 1st 
you know, that's the latest budget deadline. No, they're coming back to focus on some random tax bill, doubling refundable tax credits uh, for people who don't even pay taxes, and then some other business tax breaks. I have a column out today detailing that. I, I hope to get into that in more detail, but they're, they're putting it on the suspension calendar, a massive tax bill that should be debated It's something really we shouldn't be focusing on. It has some good provisions, but in my view, it's overridden by both the policy and politics of the broader package. So they're focusing on that. And then what about immigration? They're focusing on impeaching Mayorkas. And again, if impeaching Mayorkas is the hammer driven into the anvil of a budget defund fight, then then that's great. But if it's done to serve as a loincloth, oh, look at this, look at this impeachment, it's, it's the worst of all. Because it does nothing for us. It does nothing for us. So we had this ultimatum that CBP gave Texas to hand over Shelby Park on Friday. Well, notice it's been a pretty quiet weekend. And obviously the main focus has been on the attack on our troops in Jordan and some other things. But it's all been forgotten. We had this big Civil War moment. And it's a joke. Congress is doing nothing with it. The governors are doing nothing with it. And Greg Abbott himself is doing nothing with it. Now, you might say, well, Daniel, didn't they win? They, they won. The feds made, gave an ultimatum and, uh, you know, Texas didn't give in. Well, notice how the feds didn't even try to go to court or force their way in. Notice they're not filing any emergency petition, you know, back to the district court or straight to the Supreme Court. You wonder why? Because the razor wire in that 1.5 mile area has become the end to itself. That has become the input without regard for the output in the other 1,999 miles, uh, I'm sorry, um, 1,199 miles of the Texas-Mexican border. So it's a perfect, perfect example of how the Republicans jujitsu that energy into a black hole. That could have been used as an inflection moment, but instead they cut a deal with the feds. Hey, you guys could go get Shelby Park. They're not they're not really contesting it anymore. Also, keep in mind, as I mentioned, this time of year, literally January headed into February, is always where you have the lowest amount of people crossing. Uh, Latin Americans don't like cold weather, um, especially in the desert overnight. And the river is extremely um, deep. And also Eagle Pass, which, you know, for a while it was RGV, the the southern corner of Texas, which was always the hotbed, because that's really the straight shot up the highways from Mexico. So they moved to Eagle Pass, which was historically an anomaly. But in Eagle Pass is where the river is really the widest and the deepest. That area. So they're not crossing there anyway. So the feds and Texas will be able to declare victory that the numbers are down. But in reality, there's a bunch of drugs and bad people coming through Laredo. There are signs that the RGV is going to get hot again. And guess what? Guess what? It turns out that Texas military forces are and DPS are putting a lot of assets into Eagle Pass now. They're taking out of the RGV, which was always the biggest area, and putting into this. And we're going to... You know, so, so, so what they're going to do is they'll, they'll build a moat and a fortress 
in Eagle Pass, with the exception of everything else, while not actually deporting illegals wherever they're, they're caught. So the few numbers of the few people that try to come across, yeah, they'll apprehend them, they'll arrest them. But all this has done is it, it's allowed a photo op moment so where Christy Nome could go down there. I hear Donald Trump might go down there. And so it's all going to be this, yeah, this is our Alamo. This is our Alamo. And meanwhile, the feds are like, all right, go have it. It's all a joke designed to diffuse the angst. This is why what I tell you is we can never have nice things because even when we want to unite behind these Republicans, again, I would much rather be praising Greg Abbott over an Alamo moment than having to tell you this, but they, they always betray us. I mean, this is ultimately why you need a new party, and this is ultimately why I only focus on Republicans and not Democrats, because until we change this, you can't even fight them. You'd be better off without them. You'd have a natural opposition arise. You know, one of my sources points out to me that this has always been what Operation Lone Star has been. It's all optics and grandstanding and political theater at the expense of, um, you know, actually outcomes. Most of the indicators of success used by Abbott, if you've noticed, it's not focused on measures of effectiveness, but of performance, quantity of equipment delivered, quantity of razor wire, or, or the Boyu system, or the walls, number of DPS or Texas military defense units, you know, deployed. The seizure of Shelby Park. It's not about outcomes. And that's emblematic of the broader GOP. Oh, look, we had three amazing Supreme Court justices. Well, what's the outcome we're getting from it? Oh my gosh, we have this populist MAGA movement. Well, show me which primaries we're winning. And, and, and that's the problem. It's all show. And we're not having much of, a, of an Alamo moment. And by the way, speaking of Greg Abbott, you know, oh my gosh, remember the Alamo. How about remember the H-1B visas? It turns out that as this was going on, Greg Abbott just, um, he's heading to India to push H-1B visas. From the Houston Chronicle, Abbott begins a nine-day trip to India. So he's not even there. And what's he doing in India? He's pushing H-1B visas. Because again, nothing has changed about the party. Nothing has changed. All of their donors and lobbyists and special interests, they love more visas. Now, the reality is India ranks up there with China and Mexico as the number one source of immigration we've had for really decades by now. And the irony is everyone's like, yeah, Greg Abbott's going to stand against the invasion. And, you know, we're not going to allow them to turn Texas blue. There's an interesting article, if you have time, take, check it out. It's in Foreign Policy from 2020, Indian Americans Stir Blue Wave in Deep Red, Texas. Now, I, I, look, 
I don't have anything against them, unlike Somalis and the Islamic immigrants and really a lot of the third world ones. You know, a lot of them are very productive and decent. I've never had problems with them. It just, it does happen to be. They they do overwhelmingly vote Democrat. There's exceptions, but um, they do, you know, around two-thirds of Indian Americans came to the United States in the past 20 years, a higher rate than any immigrant community other than Mexican Americans. And polls show that they're just majority, majority vote Democrat. Um. According to a YouGov poll, this is a few years old already, 72% of registered Indian American voters uh, voted for Biden in 2020. And, you know, Texas is obviously a big destination state for them. Houston suburbs, Dallas suburbs too, I think, Plano areas a lot. Um, And the reality is, they vote Democrat. Again, I mean, there's some great people from there, but, you know, numbers do matter. Amounts matter. And even after everything we've seen from mass migration, especially politically, Republicans have not learned their lesson one iota. Like I told you, I don't think they like the invasion aspect of it, but they like the outcome of having that many steady flow of constant you know, number of people from third world countries and countries that they just don't have a freedom mindset. You know, they're not all going to be Dinesh D'Souza's. That, that, that's just how it is. So, and it's interesting, by the way, Indians really do buck the trend. I've, I, I've done analyses of this before. I feel like they're one of the only demographics immigration-wise we have that are actually overwhelmingly not on welfare, but do vote Democrat overwhelmingly, nonetheless. And, you know, different theories for that. And those of you who have, you know, Indian heritage probably could, could explain that better than me. But that's just a reality. They're stuck on all these visas as if we don't have enough. And that leads me to our next buddy, James Lankford. So the entire right-wing media is just going nuts. Oh my gosh, look at this. This is terrible. Where did this come from? James Lankford. So, you know, real briefly, what's Lankford doing? Um, he basically is, they're going to come out with the text this week, and he's working out with a deal with Democrats. And and by the way, most GOP senators, the Thune, Cornyn, McConnell, all these guys support it to have massive aid to uh, Ukraine in exchange for border security. But the irony is that the border security, which is what we're supposed to be getting, actually weakens current law. So they want to mandate in law that under certain circumstances, you have to have certain border security. Whereas under current law, you have to always secure the border all the time and not let any of these people in. But yet, Biden is not abiding by the law and is subverting it, and Congress does nothing about it. And this has really been the story for years. So now he just wants to codify new law that actually weakens current law. He basically wants to create a trigger, something like if you have, you know, an average of a seven-day average of 5,000 a day per going over the border, it triggers some shutdown of the border. But even then, it's not a full shutdown. But it's like, well, what do you mean? You're, you're, so basically... What what they're writing into law is 
essentially, I mean, and, and this before we get to all the loopholes, but just the base of it, maybe we'll get into this later this week, is that in addition to a million immigrants a year and another million, you know, student visas and then another million worker visas, it literally legalizes a half a million illegals coming over the border. <laughs> it basically says that's good. You get above that level, then it's a problem. The reality is, 2006 Secure Fence Act, which, by the way, was supported by almost all the really bipartisan support, was signed by Bush. Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer all voted for it. It requires that the DHS secretary take all actions necessary within 18 months of, m- months of passage, so that would have been 20, 2008, to achieve and maintain operational control over the entire inter- international land and maritime borders of the United States. Section 2B of that bill defined operational control as the prevention of all unlawful entries into the U.S., including entries by terrorists, other unlawful aliens, so that's anyone, instruments of terrorism, narcotics, and other contraband. So what happened to that? So it weakens current law. So everyone is really pissed off at him, and this is terrible. But this is where I come in and say, you are the same idiots that have slept through primaries for years, and the same idiots that still don't have any game plan to help work with people like me to recruit and get candidates. And I want to talk about that later, how hard it is to do that. To change the name of the game. It is eerie for someone like me. You know, I'm turning 39. I'm not 70. I'm not 60. And yet, I've been around doing this long enough that now almost every piece of garbage Senate rhino from a deep red state that screws us and people are like, oh, how did that guy get there? Guess what? I am on record publicly as having tried to prevent them entering the Senate to begin with. And James Lankford is one of them. And this is a perfect example. So James Lankford was a Southern Baptist preacher from Oklahoma City, and he put on the works, and everyone thought he was great. He was part of the Tea Party era, was elected to the House in 2010, and everyone thought he was great. And I knew he was just another leadership stooge. And what happened was the legendary Senator Tom Coburn, he, he you know, had, had terminal cancer, So he resigned in 2014. This is at the beginning of 2014. So January 2014, almost to the day, literally a decade ago, very nostalgic for me. I wrote a piece at Red State. So I was working at this Madison Project pack, a small pack where I would work together with the Club for Growth and Senate Conservatives Fund to try to shadow box McConnell and his people and, uh, you know, Boehner and his people, Paul Ryan, in, in the House races. And our goal was every open seat, you know, we did some incumbent races too, but every open seat in a deep red area to at least any new seat would would go to a conservative. So Oklahoma, right? I mean, you can't get better than that. And I wrote a piece that we can do much better than James Lankford. And I was advocating for the other, the Tulsa area congressman, Jim Bridenstine, who eventually resigned to become Trump's NASA administrator. He was a Navy pilot. He was actually good friends with Ron DeSantis, elected around the same the same time. He actually knocked off an incumbent, um, Sullivan, this guy in, in Tulsa. I wasn't a part of that. 
I, I came, I was late to the game there, but then I became friends with Jim. So I was pushing Jim. I was like, wait a minute, why why is everyone just saying that Langford should should replace Coburn? Um, we need Bridenstine. But, you know, everyone, the entire system got behind Langford. And, you know, we had none of these, all of these, these like populist voices. None of them focused on what we should. So Langford got it. But if you, just so you know, I'm not BSing you. If you want to Google, uh, uh, and I was quoted extensively in an article from The Hill. This is uh, January 21st, 2014. GOP's internal battle brews in Oklahoma. Um, so they quote, they quote Brian Walsh, the, uh, you know, NRSC spokesman, you know, uh, you know, saying their position. And then they talk about Madison Project Heritage Action and Senate Conservatives Fund um, fighting the, these people. And that's what I was a part of. Um, but it's exactly that willingness to work with the establishment on issues that is conservative so incensed about his candidacy and so ready to back an alternative. This is so much more of a broader look. It's pertinent to a lot of races, said Daniel Horowitz of the Madison Project, who said he who has said it wouldn't endorse Lankford and would like Bridenstein to jump into the race. More than just how conservative someone is, it's something different. Congress has a 7% approval rating, and everyone agrees that there needs to be a wholesale change. We're the only ones looking for fundamental change. Hurwitz said the group wants to change the culture of Washington by bringing in purists. I actually didn't use that word. But to do that, they believe only a guy like Bridenstine, who is willing to buck the establishment, his first vote was to oust John Boehner as speaker, would be successful there. It's a new type of candidate, a new type of Mr. Smith goes to Washington, not connected to the special interest, Hurwitz said. Um, and, and we go on there, and, and, and look, it's on record. So you guys know, you know, when we have this whole thing about, oh, your establishment, no, you don't back Trump. This is long before Trump, okay? This is before that. This is what I was working on. Those of you who are new to this show understand almost every opportunity in a red state we ever had to get a better candidate, I was there. But, you know, here we go. Langford gets in there, he screws us, then he's up for his full term in 2016, gets re-elected, then we come to 2022, which was recently, and Trump endorses him. And, and this is after Trump was no longer president. So you could say maybe, okay, if you're leader of the party, you're sitting president, you're not going to endorse against people of your own party, which he did when he wanted to. Um, but no, he said he's strongly committed to America first. He's strongly committed to me. Um, and he's tough on crime and the border. He's actually extremely weak on border and crime. He's been working on amnesty deals ever since he was in the Senate, which we knew. Lankford is kind of like that Mike Pence fake evangelical thing where it's it's like you have all the bad aspects of the established organizations that you're so into the AIDS in Africa. You're into, which by the way, we now know that all those drugs actually killed people. Um and 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 Jesus wants people to have second, fifth, and tenth chances and get out of jail. And uh, we have to be nice to the people at the border. And Lankford was always horrible. But Trump said he was tough on crime and tough on the border. Remember that how every – it was like a, a, a standard endorsement. Every endorsement Trump gave was tough on crime, tough on the border when he – I guess it's a reflection of he himself screwed us on both of those. 
And so everyone's like, oh, Lightford, we need to get rid of him. Well, thanks to Mitha Trump and your complacency, he was just renominated. So you got to wait till 2028. And by then, I'm sure we'll forget. And like every other one, he'll be, he'll sail to renomination. That's how pathetic we are. That's what happens when you have a movement all on these flashpoints that are built upon symbolism over substance and outcomes, inputs over outcomes. This is what we're left with. A bunch of nonsense. But meanwhile, I was trying to prevent these guys from ever getting in there. Hovind in North Dakota, Kramer in North Dakota, Tillis in, in, in North Carolina, I worked to ensure he didn't get in. All these guys. And here's another thing. So, so you might think, well, Daniel, now everyone is based. No, they're not. There is no focus on trying to get in better people. None whatsoever. Do you know that in Montana, Montana, Mitha Trump is, uh, Mitha Trump is supporting, okay, well, he's not endorsing, but Brusowitz and Marjorie Taylor Greene are bashing Matt Rosendale. So you have this guy, Sheehy, that Mitch McConnell recruited, donated to Tim Scott's presidential campaign, random guy coming out of nowhere. And here it is, we finally worked hard enough to create a Freedom Caucus where we have a bench of conservatives in the House where we could finally, finally, finally start getting decent guys into the Senate. So you have a, you know, what what should be Democrats increasingly are having a hard time hold on holding on to red states. Uh, Tester is one of the few Democrats still doing that. And here we are where we um we have a guy that is literally a top five congressman, but because he didn't take the phone call of Trump pushing Kevin McCarthy rather than making him a hero, he's a villain. So the Trump establishment's working with the McConnell establishment to take out Rosendale. Now, some people are like, well, Rosendale ran already in 2018 and he lost. 2018, he lost only by a few points and that was a horrible year. Oh, and why was it a horrible year? Oh, yeah, that's right. So this is from the New York Times. Um, both parties are using him, meaning Matt Rosendale, as a pawn in their electoral chess. Establishment Republicans who have aligned behind Tim Shee are trying to keep Rosendale out of the race. Um, and they go on to say that they're getting their guy. Kevin McCarthy has money behind him. And they're preparing to just bash Rosendale with a bunch of ads. In an interview on Thursday with Stephen Bannon's War Room podcast, Mr. Rosendale said that Mr. Danes had repeatedly pressured him to stay out of the race. He recounted that in one instance, an ally of Mr. Danes, whom Mr. Rosendale described as a political soldier, asked a Rosendale confidant, what is it going to take to keep you out of the race? And my question to my friend Steve Bannon is, well, Steve, if you, if you kind of get that Rosendale is the better candidate, how come you have no ability to get Trump to endorse him 
and get Trump's surrogates to stop attacking him. This is the problem. This is what happens when it's all about fealty to one man. And I, I, I cannot overstate the problem we're having with candidate recruitment in deep red states. Deep red states. And I want to use this as an opportunity to go a little bit off topic to talk about, you know, just relitigate some aspects of the presidential primary. I hear a lot of bullcrap from even people I like that, well, I like Ron DeSantis. He's the greatest governor ever. He's the greatest this, greatest on outcome, smartest guy, cleanest background. Went a whole year and they had nothing on him that they could dig up. But, well, he's not so inspiring in this speech and he's not so charismatic. Okay, let, let me tell you something, folks. You have no idea how hard it is to get a person who is stable, smart, doesn't, won't embarrass you, you know, could, you know, understands the issues and shares our values and is at a perch, either politically or accomplishment wise, that has the ability to run a campaign, especially statewide. I mean, it's very few people, okay? You have no idea. This is before we even get to, do you have a funny-sounding name? Are you too short? Do you have some sort of just kind of you know superficial stuff, but, but that ultimately matters with your candidacy and makes it harder to win? It is so hard. See, we would always have these primaries, and people would say, well, Daniel, I'm all for going after the establishment, but you got to get better candidates. I'm thinking, I mean, no one's perfect, but what do, you, what do you want? When you go up against the establishment of both parties and the media joins with the Republicans to bash the conservative challengers, you're going to look clumsy no matter what you do. No matter what you do is going to look clumsy. Because the deal is, if you get a guy like Mitch McConnell, he might not be loved, but, well, he's been around forever and the world hasn't fallen apart. He's a known quantity. It's hard to define him. Whereas if you're a new guy, ooh, who is this guy? And they start digging up, oh, and he did this and he did that. And then I'd get even conservatives tell me, well, Daniel, I, I, I want to get rid of the guy, but I don't know, your candidate's a little bit, whatever. Well, what do you think they're going to do? What do you think they're going to do when you challenge the entire system? The media is just going to embrace your guy? You have no idea. This is why... People don't understand. I cannot find DeSantis's even for a minor position. You have a lot of these guys that are very superficially anti-establishment, but they're very disheveled or they're really embarrassing. Like their heart might be in the right place. And if you could get them in, which you, you'll never be able to, and you could advise them, you might be able to get them to do the right thing. But they just don't know the issues. It, you have no idea how thin the bench is. And this is the problem. We, we, we refuse to do what it's going to take. And this is why if we had a movement to put a gun to Rona McDaniel's head, proverbially, oh, I think we do have a movement, right? Because who influences her most? Oh, that's right. The person who actually got her the job and kept the job for her. 
how come all these Trump influencers don't sit down with him and demand A, that Rona McDaniel close our primaries, but B, that we move towards a convention system, at least for certain offices. So that way you don't have to go through the gauntlet of special interest money, which is so hard to raise, nearly impossible, if you're going up against the party establishment. You see what I'm saying? We're not changing things. So now we're caught. Like, here, here's what I've been doing. You, you know how I said you have a bunch of these rhino senators and obviously congressmen um, that are going to be up for renomination in deep red states within the coming weeks and months. And I noted that very few, we have challengers, very few. So I've been tr- trying to go through green papers and see who's filed to run. And, and you know, you look at these no-name candidates and I try to vet them. And look, I'll support anyone against the incumbent rhino. But the reality is a lot of these guys are just very flaky. And especially now, what the Trump movement has created, these guys are just kind of weirdos. Um, And they might sound anti-establishment, but if you actually look at their views, they're a little bit off kilter. And, and like we said, when, when you're not... Sm- stupid is as stupid does. You can't fight a re- revolution with ignorance, stupidity, anti-intellectualism, it's just not going to work because you land in the same place. You're, you're like a balloon in the wind. You're like a Teletubby. Ooh, that sounds nice. You know, I mean, if you don't know what you don't know, you fall right into it. And, and again, usually these people just have no ability to win an election. This is why people are like, well, I wish DeSantis were this and that. Okay, look, the guy's a blue collar type of guy that remained that way, but had that sort of Harvard, Yale education Smart could appeal to people, knows the issues, gets it done like nobody else does. You know, it's not like he's embarrassing. I mean, he, he we saw at the town halls, at the debates, command of the issues. It's just he's not like the most charismatic person. But if this is what we're going to create, I'll tell you, I could find charismatic people. But then it's going to come out the back end. Then the guy is more plasticated and he's more put on and he's more obsessed about his image. And he's more like, you know, kind of the caricature of... uh a politician in, in one of these movies about a sleazy politician that he's always looking at the cameras. Like some of these guys going down to the border uh, who has, you know, Texas DPS uh, around them or Border Patrol. Oh, yeah, get, get me in this pose. Get me in that pose. It comes at a policy. They're not for real. So that's the problem with those guys. You don't have a perfect candidate. It is so hard. So the best types we have are kind of like the Freedom Caucus legislators running for federal office. But even then, we don't have a movement that I could, I can't go over to, let's say, the best guy in a legislator, in a state legislature, who wants to run for Congress, Senate, or governor, deep red state, and say, look, you go and run, I'll go to all the top voices in conservative media and get support for you. I can't tell them that because they won't. And in fact, more often than not, there is another candidate in the race, an establishment guy, that is likely to get Trump's endorsement. And I don't understand why I'm the only one who talks about this. Commensurate with how much you support Trump and think he's all-knowing, all-seeing, and all-powerful within the party and the movement, and how much influence you think you have in Mar-a-Lago, That's how much of an indictment it is for you to continue this way and not get him off these bad endorsements. 
We're so aloof. And here's the thing. We're so screwed with suburban voters. We are so screwed with our ability to win the swing states, both in terms of governorships and legislatures now, but then obviously for a national election. So all the more so we need a Noah's Ark. We need a sanctuary in deep red state America where you're not going to lose to the Democrats, where we're going to have Republicans who aren't like Democrats and don't govern like them. But that's where Trump is a one-two punch. Make us unpopular, unelectable with with, uh, swing voters, and then signal to the establishment that as long as you kiss my ring, I'll give you an endorsement regardless of your policies. I cannot overstate how much this man has screwed us since 2016 on primaries. And yes, I do have the resume to say that because as you could see, I was involved in that before he came around. I mean, by the way, we are facing losses just from the courts. Kavanaugh. Who nominated Kavanaugh when he wasn't on the list? Oh, that's right. Trump. I oppose his nomination. Kavanaugh sided with the left to basically say that the southern states have a right to take take their black population and Democrats have a have a constitutional right to maximize, to u- utilize the black vote to maximize their um, the number of seats they have. Then again, I guess brothers be flipping, right? B- brothers be flipping. So maybe actually that there'll be more Republican seats because the brothers be flipping. By the way, it was the funniest thing. So last week, um, Steve has been tweeting out a lot of good data on how we're losing the suburban vote. And, you know, basically... For every every five points we're losing of the a suburban vote, we're clawing to get a half a point of the black vote, and it's not it's not a even proposition. And in fact, what, one of the things we noticed in the twenty twenty two election, so you know, people were befuddled as to how is it that, and, and this is very important to spend a little bit of time on this, because. Um, our entire industry is ignoring the lessons of the 2022 election. One of the things we saw is that, okay, the red states are always solid. Okay, they'll be solid. I mean, the deep red states. Mind you, we actually lost the Kentucky and Kansas governorships. Now, they were they were retentions for the Dems because they were already there. But in a year like that, in a red state, they should have lost. That's how incompetent we are. But generally, okay, red states you'll keep. So one of the things is that the the generic ballot seemed to be more Republican than Dem, which is what was so confusing. We thought we'd have a good year. But then the outcome was bad. And the reason the outcome was bad is because part of what padded the GOP um, numbers, so if you would take the entire country, how many Republicans voted, how many Democrats voted, so that's a meaningless measure because it, it it's all a matter of the strategic areas. So Republicans ran up the score in deep red areas. And then conversely, ironically, but conversely, in blue metros that you're never going to win, but they cut into the, the Dem lead. So, you know, you have a big urban areas like New York City, they, they, they squeezed out a few more votes. So rather than the Democrats getting 90% of the black vote, they got 86% of the black vote, right? So that, that, made a difference, but 
a difference without a distinction. Again, another input without an outcome. (laughs) The outcome was terrible. In the swing districts, which are governed by what? Suburban voters. We got crushed in a midterm with an unpopular Democrat and the worst cost of living crisis spiking right during that general election. So anyway, Steve was putting this out. And I said, I, t- I tweeted back to Steve sarcastically. I said, I respectfully disagree, Steve. In places like Baltimore, the brothers be flipping. So yes, he probably lost eight points from the suburbs, but he will flip another 10 from Tyrone and another eight from Julio, as Matt Gates said yesterday, and I tagged Matt Gates. So what happened was Matt Gates was stupid enough to retweet it. So he thought I was serious because Matt Gates said something about, oh, the Julios are going to give us the vote. So I added Tyrone, you know, because I guess he was addressing the Hispanics. So he, I, I added to it. I thought it was so obvious I was making fun out of him. He retweeted it and then someone told him. So then he undid it. But that this is how aloof these people are. They genuinely are just blind. They're blind to outcomes. They're blind to how we're going to win what are we going to do about Biden destroying our military and our troops and, and, and the border and inflation and all this stuff? What are we going to do? How are we going to win? And if not nationally, how are we going to at least win the red states? And nobody else is focused on the issues that matter, the way they matter, at the time they matter, the primaries that matter, the candidates that matter. And I would like to never talk about Trump for the rest of the year, and I have no interest in it. So I'm like, all right, you you have yours, I have mine. With you, everything's a presidential election. You focus on that. I'm going to focus on the state legislatures, the issues, primaries, down ballot. But everywhere I turn, this guy is getting in my way. He He's, you know, Trump's going to make a big deal out of Shelby Park this week. Also, I have a feeling that Trump is going to get in our way of trying to Force a government shutdown fight because be like, oh, I don't want that before my election. I'll take care of it when I win. And then they're aloof about how is it you're going to win? Daniel, we need revenge. We need Trump to win. Okay, I agree with you. So name me one thing you're doing to improve Trump's message, image, or ground game that's going to get you to win. And they're like, basically, the entire Trump orbit is putting out stuff. Screw the suburbs. And they're even starting to make fun out of whites and, and, and uh, echo Democrat dogma. And it's, just, it's, it's so dumb. It's not working. It is not working. Like, this is not funny. You can't lose the Texas suburbs. Ted Cruz could lose his seat with Trump at the top of the ticket. He only won by two and a half last time. This is really bad. I mean, this whole thing about Texas being a fake red state, it might be a moot point soon anyway. Because Democrats might win it. Outcomes, outcomes matter. It's, it's just so bizarre. Do you know that since 2016, since 2016, We've gone from five to 17 Democrat trifectas. Okay, we're in a state where the Democrats control both houses of the legislature, 
as well as the governorship. Do you know that in 2016, when Trump was elected, it was just five states? And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is that we, we've explained this many times. Democrats, before we lost the suburbs, Democrats were confined to just really blacks and Hispanics and urban areas. So they, they don't distribute their votes well. In other words, they'll win a bunch of districts 80-20, but then they'll lose a lot of other things 55-45, 58-42. So Republicans would naturally get more districts. So in other words, even a state that, let's say, was 55-45 Dem. In other words, so the Dems are going to win the statewide races, Senate and governor. You'll have a Democrat governor. Okay, picture states like Minnesota. Certainly Michigan and Pennsylvania, but even, even like New Mexico and Nevada, they would have, they might have the governorship at a given time, even some of the northeastern states. But Republicans would have at least one body of the legislature because of the way the map is drawn. What happened when Trump lost the suburbs? They now have 17 trifectas. So in other words, there are 17 states where it's gangbusters pedal to the metal craziness. Now, okay, it would be one thing if he's polarizing and, you know, he just we're, we're blew America's nuts. And then even swing America, we're losing. We can't win nationally. But my gosh, since Trump came in, look at them red states. He has changed the party. And these guys are nationalist, populist. They don't take garbage. They're a reflection of the left. In their states. Pedal to the metal. So I'm forgetting, what is it? We have 23 tri trifectas, something like that. We still have more trifectas than, than the Democrats do. And we always should, given that there's more small states than big states, right? Each state is its own unit of government, even th but it has equal power. Again, Madison's design benefits, it, it skews towards rural America. That's the only reason why we have the power we do. And that's why the left is always yelping about the Electoral College and, you know, the way, uh, you know, senators are chosen. You know, obviously, they would want California to have many more seats than North Dakota. And I get it. But thankfully, they don't. But we underutilize the map. This is what people don't realize. Like, the Senate should be, if anything, at least as conservative as the House because every two-bit red state gets two senators just like California does. But no. We have the Lankfords. We have, and even now, oh man, but Daniel, now we're, we're, we, we changed the party. No, we haven't. With Trump's help, they're about to elect new rhinos from Montana and West Virginia. It doesn't change because it's all about inputs, not about outcomes. And therein lies the problem. So now Republicans are going to have an input of Mayorkas being impeached while they fund the border invasion while the states have this fake interposition that never even materialized, Greg Abbott keeps doing his thing. And we go on. We go on. Nothing changes. It's all about symbolism. By the way, you know, um, you know this, this woman, I'm forgetting, she's this rhino from Miami in the Florida legislature that had the bill to give $5 million to Trump you know, because he's not wealthy enough to support his own legal defense. And DeSantis said no way, so she pulled the bill. You know, it turns out she voted against his bill 
that created the death penalty for child rapists. So, so this is what it's all about now. This is what the inputs over outcomes has allowed. It's allowed all these people to, to take a look at conservative, you know, noise-making industry and see what, what are they excited about? What sort of fake cultural flashpoint symbolism, icing on the cake are they really into in that given day? And they'll indulge it at the expense of everything else. And that's how the left, despite how unpopular they are, and how destructive they are, they're continuing to win elections. And more importantly, they're continuing to win policies, even in the red states. Because we don't have a team on the field. We have cheerleaders. We have musicians. We have people selling hot dogs and, and beer. We don't have a quarterback. We don't have running backs. And the few that try to come on the field, we censor them. We ignore them. Speaking of which, <laughs> it's the Chiefs and the 49ers again. <laughs> When's the last time that happened? Yeah, 2020. And that was the worst year of our lives. So hopefully that's not a harbinger of this being a terrible year. But again, we got to look through this stuff. I'm all for cultural flashpoints if they are a means to an end. But you don't get points for trying, for input. It's for results. And that's what we got to start seeing. So look, email me, Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com. If you guys have, you know, good guys you're seeing that are getting ignored, that you feel need to be elevated, I'm going to try to elevate down the ballot candidates as much as I can do, but I can only do as much as I can do. And it is shocking to me that eight years into this, we don't have a systematic organization going down the list and knocking out every rhino. Because, you know, we kind of did. The people who voted against Trump for impeachment, the people who voted for impeachment. And, and I agree with that. But why is it that the only time we have the movement is for one man's personality when too often that personality is a double-edged sword and is literally exactly what is keeping people like James Langford in office. Every one of them. You have no idea. This man endorsed every incumbent. See, a lot of you don't even know about races because we never had these races because Good guys never ran against them because they knew that Trump would endorse the establishment. So why would they do a picket's charge only to lose against your own base? So just remember, when you pass up people like DeSantis, they don't come around very often. Look, we're all big talkers. It's a lot easier to do what I'm doing than what DeSantis is doing. I can't, anyone could get behind a microphone, although I guess not. <laughs> no one else seems to do this even behind a microphone when, you know, you don't have to worry about constituents and getting elected. But certainly to actually be able to run and win and govern in accordance with our values is very hard. So then when you start having all these other additives, well, I want the guy's personality to be a Swiss army knife. I want this. I want, yeah, I want everything, but go find it. Go recruit. Not very easy. But this is what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to build a bench in the legislatures 
We're going to work with the State Freedom Caucuses. You can join one of my teams at conaction.network. We now have a Wisconsin team that we're forming. Got about a dozen teams, about really 14. So let me know. I'll try to check my email more often this week. It was a little bit tough last week, but um, you know, so I'm sorry if I didn't get to you. But again, Daniel Hurwitz at startmail.com. Send this show to every one of your friends and relatives. Please give us a five-star rating with a comment on iTunes so we surge above the empty calories. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all. Read your Isaiah 59. And thank you for listening.